Welcome to Biblical Higher Ed Talk, where we tap into the wisdom of leaders and practitioners of biblical higher education for the advancement of colleges and universities teaching the way of Christ in the modern world. Each week, we'll tackle topics around leading your organization, expanding your impact in the world, and deepening your faith through Christ-centered conversations. Ready to make a difference in the lives of your faculty, staff, and students? Then let's begin our journey. Today on Biblical Higher Ed Talk, I sit down with Darren Campbell, the CEO of several ed tech companies serving Christian higher education. Drawing on decades of successful entrepreneurial leadership, Darren shares with us some key business lessons that institutions of biblical higher education can use to advance their missions. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Philip Dearborn, president of the Association for Biblical Higher Education. And we are honored to have as our guest this week, Darren Campbell. Darren is the founder CEO of Campus EDU, a company in the tech space serving Christian higher education. He is also the founder CEO of Slingshot, another ed tech company providing textbook and e-learning resources. And I've invited Darren in to talk about entrepreneurial leadership, specifically drawing from his experiences, both in the business as well as the tech space. So welcome, Darren, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Philip. Good morning. So to, to kick off our conversation, as you reflect back over your professional and ministry experiences, share with us one defining moment that God used to propel you forward in either your personal or your professional life. Yeah, that's a great question. When I was growing up, I grew up in a little town up in Canada, Woodstock, New Brunswick. So just on the on the main border and I uh, grew up in a Wesleyan church background, a Christian home and the youngest of four kids. And my mom and dad had a ninth grade education. Neither one of them obviously finished high school or went to college. Dad sold cars for a living. My mom worked in the laundry at a nursing home. And I went to a Christian conference uh, one December, and I met this man, Chuck Mealy, from Indiana Wesleyan University, and he told me I could go to college. I can remember, you know, he was a stranger, but he believed in me. And it's funny how a stranger can nudge you. I mean, God will put someone in your life. You know, we all have those people, our pastor, our parents, you know, uh, employee, employer, or somebody, a coach that, you know, has a profound impact, but sometimes God just uses somebody that's random in a 15 minute conversation. And I remember going home to my parents and saying, I want to go to college. And my parents were like, college, why do you want to go to college? I mean, zero kind of support from home. It was just a foreign idea. Not only that, I wanted to go to Indiana Wesleyan university. And my, I remember my, my dad saying, where's Indiana? Where is it? And I said, I don't even know. I don't know where Indiana is. I'm just, you know, 18 years old. And my mom said, well, what does it cost? And I said, I don't know. And, um, but I believed that I was supposed to go to college. I felt a strong pull. And that was a a long shot for my family that couldn't afford a private education, let alone college in in the United States. But my dad was mowing the lawn and he was uh, praying as he was mowing the lawn. And um, the prayer he told me, he told me this years later, he said, Lord, I, I don't even have the gas money. It's 1,200 miles away. I don't even have the gas money to take him, but this kid's determined to go. If this is, you've got to give me a sign. And no joke, the next door neighbor walked across the street at that moment and asked my dad if he would sell him the lawnmower. 
And my dad said, let me finish mowing the lawn. And he sold the lawnmower for the gas money. And that was our sign. And I, it was a pivotal moment in that, you know, hearing the Lord's voice, following his first really call on my life as a young man. And then every good thing in my life, I can trace back to that experience in Christian higher education. I mean, I met my wife, got my education, started business from that. God called me in the ministry. I became an ordained minister. Every, everything I look at today that I get to participate in, I can trace back to Chuck Mealy and him believing in me and that little nudge. How about that? So have you had other conversations with Chuck since, since that time, or was that just like a, a random connection? No, no, he, uh, Chuck had a lot, he was a spiritual father to a lot of, a lot of us. So yeah, had a huge impact. He's with the Lord now, but, um, we had a chance to connect. I got a nice picture of him and I told this story at a, at a chapel and uh, he didn't know the story and it got back to him. And so he reached back out and yeah, we had a chance to, to, to reminisce about it. What a great reminder of the divine appointments that God sets up in our life. And to us, they seem random but clearly in God's master plan of what he's working, his sovereignty, his providence in our own lives, he uses those circumstances. And, and God clearly used that for you as a, as a launching point and a, and a trajectory forward for you and in both your ministry, but then also your professional uh, experiences. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So, so, so we're going to jump into this. Uh, and so a, a number of questions around the, the, the topic of, of entrepreneurial leadership. Uh, something that you've been a part of. You're you're wired that way. That's your that's your DNA, and you've started several businesses, successful businesses uh, along the way. Just from a, a, a high level perspective, what makes entrepreneurial leadership different from other types of leadership? Yeah, I I think when you think about being an entrepreneur and, and leading in that way, it's really about risk and taking risk. And as a biblical entrepreneur, it's it's leveraging. Uh, your talent. And, you know, I, I go back to the parable of the talents where Jesus explains, um, you know, this idea that ta our talent comes from God. I mean, it's a gift from God. And when we use our talents, we reflect back to God, his image, you know, we're his image bearers, right? So uh, when, uh, you know, that parable talks about be giving talent and then risking it, and the reward comes from those that risk it, and the rebuke comes from those that bury it. And I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, being able to lead a group of people or an organization in, in calculated risk and taking risks, trying to discern what God's will is, and then uh, taking risks in overcoming any kind of fear or, or problem um, that you might face. Entrepreneurs are problem solvers. So it's like, okay, you know, uh, I just checked in with one of my executives uh, before this call. We're just kind of going through what are the problems that we're facing this week? And, you know, how can we overcome those problems? How can we solve those problems? So I'd say an entrepreneur is, is not afraid of taking risks and leading in that way, overcoming any kind of fear, and then attempting to solve whatever obstacles, whatever problems come in their way. And uh, kind of with, a, with an assumption that every problem is solvable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And w would you say, and I'm sure uh, there's a lot of literature that's that's been, I, I've read it myself when it comes to entrepreneurial leadership. Some saying it's a, it's a style of leadership. It's how somebody's wired. It's just a, uh, it's not necessarily a style. It's what all leaders are supposed to do. But I, I do think there's, there's a, there's a bit of a separation. There's, there's definitely that classification of, of, of person who's just kind of wired differently where they're able to pull above the fray 
see the bigger picture, see a vision, see a potential problem, and then be able to to vision what that solution actually looks like. Yeah, I I, I could argue both sides. Definitely, I'm wired to take risks. And among my family, I remember when Nancy and I were were dating, we were in actually engaged. We were in premarital counseling, and our counselor asked us a question. It was about money management, and they said, "You know, if you you had a thousand dollars, what would you do?" And of course, I grew up in a family that bought and sold cars, and we would go to the auction and we would buy these cars at the auction and then turn around and fix them up and sell them. And so I said, "Well, I'd buy a car," you know. And Nancy said, "What?" she said, I would put it in the bank. And I said, put it in the bank. You wouldn't make any money on interest in the bank. I said, we buy a car, we could fix it up and we could sell it and make more money. So at that moment, I mean, this woman that I loved and she loved me, she realized, oh no, what am I signing up for? And uh, she wasn't wired that way. So I think God in his providence, sometimes he gives us, in my case, gave me Nancy, who is uh, very prudent, very wise, but not a risk taker. And so she needed a risk taker in her life to stretch her. And I needed somebody to kind of pump the brakes every once in a while. If, if it wasn't for Nancy, I'm sure I would have been bankrupted many times. And if it wasn't for me, I'm sure Nancy would, she would not have led the, the, the entrepreneurial lifestyle that we, we've led. Now, I'll say this. I think everyone, everyone can be an entrepreneur and everyone can learn to risk. And you know, the passage I would look back on is, well, really the life of David. And you know, before David fights Goliath, you know, as a shepherd boy, he wrestles a bear and defeats the bear. And then God, at some point, sends a lion and David has to overcome a lion. Now, I've never overcome a lion. That sounds incredibly frightening, let alone a bear. But I, you can see the progression where David's like, you know, probably he, he had victory over the bear. Lion is more difficult, his victory over the lion. And then when he gets to this uncircumcised Philistine, he says, I fought bears, I fought lions. The God whom I'm served will give me a victory over you as well. And, and, and probably the, the biggest battle in David's life is probably Saul, you know, if you think about it. So if you look at bears and lions and Goliaths and Saul's, like God is faithful. He won't give us more than we can handle. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and, you know, no test that we face except what is common to man and God is faithful. He not allow us to be tested by what we can handle. And when we are tested, he'll always provide a way out so that we can stand under it. And, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you know, as I was getting started, God would give me metaphorically, he would give me bears and lions and then Goliaths. And so as you know, in my fifties, I have a lot of experience with taking those risks and overcoming those problems, but it's, it's a sovereign God that's just very faithfully you know, leading us similar to any athlete. I mean, a good coach will give you a really hard practice so that when you go into the arena or go into the game, you know, you're well prepared. And I think our Heavenly Father does the same thing. Yeah. How does, for, for you personally, as an entrepreneurial leadership, the, the opposite of, of taking risk or, or the, the, I would imagine the, the enemy of risk is, is fear. So how, how do you engage with fear? when you're taking risks? Yeah. You know, I think the enemy has two, two weapons. I mean, if you distill it down and again, this is an oversimplification. I'm sure many people listening to this could email us and give us a lot more examples, but in my simple mind, I mean, fear and vice are the two enemies that the enemy has, uh, two weapons that the enemy has. And God never uses fear as a motivator. He, he just doesn't. And perfect love drives out all fear. In fact, uh, I remember, um, 
it's in the Old Testament. I want to say Exodus 20, 20, Moses says, do not be afraid, fear the Lord. And the idea of the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. I mean, God is sovereign. God is ever present. He's, I mean, two or more gathered. He's in our conversation right now. So when my father is with me, uh, whom shall I fear? I mean, I don't have to have fear. When I get afraid, I have to worship. I mean, worship is like fingernails across the chalkboard. So I realize, okay, I'm, I'm afraid right now. So I'm not tapping in to the kingdom of heaven. So I need, to, I need to worship. And same thing with vice. I mean, when I am tempted, I am not tapped into the kingdom of heaven. And so I need to recognize that and uh, stop. Prayer and worship is really is the weapon. And if you think about it, what do the angels do? They, they are worshipers. I mean, there's a, a host of angels in a chorus. And I think about, you know, the walls of Jericho coming down as, as they marched around and they blew trumpets. There's something about worship and our prayer time that really overcomes that fear and vice. And so that would be what I would recommend. When, if you're in a situation right now where you're really fearful of something, that fear is not coming from the Lord, okay? The Lord doesn't use fear to motivate us. So commune with the Lord, tap into what the Lord is saying, and um, level set. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is sponsored by ABHE, the Association for Biblical Higher Education. At ABHE, bringing the love and light of Christ to the world is reflected in our drive to see our member institutions flourish, leading them to a time of success for their institution and giving them the tools and insights they need to look toward the future. Interested in learning more about membership with ABHE? Visit us at abhe.org or send us an email to membership at abhe.org. ABHE is your partner committed to advancing biblical higher education for kingdom impact. Now, back to the show. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So uh, you, your two businesses that you've had in ed tech have been geared towards higher education, specifically Christian higher education. And you and I have had a, a couple of conversations uh, throughout the last couple of years. So I know the answer to this question, but I think it's such a powerful one. Uh, what what drives your interest? Why why in the world are you focused in on Christian higher education? You know, there's a broader higher ed market, and maybe you dabble in that space as well. But you have a you have a pretty strong commitment uh, to Christian higher education. Why? Yeah, well, I just feel indebted. I mean, again, going back to Chuck Mealy and the experience I had. I mean, I showed up at Indian Wesleyan in 1991, and and I didn't know what college was about. I didn't understand residence life and you know, as I got involved and people started to invest in my life, I mean, everything changed. I mean, the discipleship, you know, happened in my life. And I met my, my future wife and got leadership positions and jobs and, and internships through that that were just like so formative. So to me, Christian education is one of the best vehicles for discipleship. It's one of the best vehicles for propelling, you know, the Great Commission around the world. It opens doors. People that, that are, countries and closed groups that are anti the gospel, they're so pro-education. And if we can package the gospel in education, and, and that's the Christian education or a Judeo-Christian worldview, so powerful. What I dislike is when education is diluted. So when it doesn't have a strong Judeo-Christian worldview or world ethic, I mean, I'm disappointed and I want to lean into that. How do we make, how do we make the gospel more potent in our education? 
And then how do we make education more affordable so that people like me, whose parents had a ninth grade education, can have access to the same experiences that we have? And that's really what we're attempting to do with both our companies. Campus EDU, the mandate is to provide very appealing educational experience that's affordable so that anybody can go to a Christian school. You have a sense of urgency about you too, with with this, with you know, being in this space and 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 providing services for for Christian higher education. What is that urgency? Yeah. Well, I mean, macro. I think Jesus is coming back soon. Every everyone is hesitant to say that because it sounds weird. I mean, you, you talk about you know Jesus coming back in our lifetime. You know, one wants to be wrong, but that's how the early church lived. They believed that Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And no one knows the day or the hour. I mean, I don't have any dispensation that I know. If I did, you should shut this podcast down right now because nobody knows. Only the Father in heaven. The angels don't know. But I think it's the right way to live. It's the right way to believe that at any time in my lifetime, Jesus is coming back. And not only do I believe it, I'm convinced of it. And if I'm wrong, that's okay it's still the right way to live. It, it creates a sense of urgency and purpose in my life that we have to get after it. And, and on, honestly, my interpersonal relationships that, that I don't have any unforgiveness in my heart or you know, that I'm in right relationship with all my brothers and sisters in Christ. Like I, I want to live expecting Jesus to come back maybe today. So uh, seasoning every conversation with a little bit of the gospel that you know, Jesus came, he died, he rose again. If we put our faith in him, we will live forever with him in eternity. I mean, finding ways to put that into a conversation, finding ways to weave that into our business and our purpose. That's kind of the, the big picture. And smaller picture, you know, there are a lot of people that are opting out of a Christian education because they don't believe it's accessible to them. And um, it makes it very hard for them to be discipled and come in, in, into the faith experience that I enjoy, that I think you enjoy. Um, when they opt out of that. And so I want to get that opportunity in their hands uh, as soon as possible, because I don't want them to miss out. You work with a number of, obviously, colleges and universities, so you've looked under the hood of a number of, of institutions through the years of having both businesses. And uh, uh, perhaps you've learned some things about the sector of, of Christian higher education, but really more generally higher education, because I believe there's a lot in, in common when it comes to the, the business model of how things work. And you've also run businesses. So as, as you, what you've learned from running those businesses and then what you know about higher education, Christian higher education, biblical higher education, what are three business principles that you'd say, boy, that sector of Christian higher education would really be better if they knew this or practice their business this way. Give us, give us three of those. You know, something we practice in both businesses and we, we call it our flywheel. And it's this idea that there's, there's really three steps on the flywheel that is constantly turning. And the first is people having the right people in the right position. And the way I would think about that is a lot of times in even a Christian organization, we know that there's a person and they're not quite the right fit, but we're afraid of moving them out. We're afraid of moving them on, uh, you know, for fear that we're going to ruin their life. And the reality is that's not walking in the fear of the Lord. I mean, obviously God has a plan for each and every one of us and our plans are interconnected in the church. And so when we trust the Lord with all our, all, all our heart and lean on our own understanding, 
we can walk confidently that we put the right people in the right position, which means at sometimes letting some people go. And so first step of the flywheel, we, and we try and do this on a regular basis. So this flywheel is turning. Do I have the right people in the right roles? And if I don't, what do I need to do today? And that's like, like having the right shoe on the right foot. I mean, flip your shoes and put them on the wrong foot and walk around for a little bit. And you'll realize this is not great. I think a lot of Christian organizations are walking around in a little bit of pain because they don't have the right people in the right uh, positions and they're afraid to confront that. And again, I, that's a risk that you need to take and you have to lean on a sovereign God that you know is going to take care of those people. So moving those people in the right positions, oh, it's just like a really nice, like, oh, it feels so good when the shoe fits. So that's number one. And I would encourage your listeners. I mean, they probably know somebody right now that isn't quite the right fit and they need to confront that. And a good leader will confront that for the sake of the organization and for the sake of that person. Because if it's uncomfortable for us in the organization, it's also uncomfortable for the person. If, if Christian higher ed could do that effectively, I think, wow, we would, it would turbo boost our mission. And I'd say if somebody's listening to this and a name came to mind, uh, it's probably not the first time that that person's name came to mind. And that's usually an indication that great person, great skill set, but not necessarily a fit. And there are a number of things of why somebody is a fit or not a fit. It's not just because they're a bad person, right? It's, it's, they, can, they can be a great person. It's just not a fit for our organization. When, when we don't act on that, we are hindering that person from God's plan for their life. You know, we're almost an obstacle. We're a stumbling block. We're, we're standing in the way of that. And so walking in the fear of the Lord, knowing that God is going to take care of them, that they want to move them on and move them in the position. And, and it, it can be a positive too. There are people that should be promoted. They're doing really good work. And, uh, you, know, you know, Proverbs says, you know, when, when it's your ability to act and to help somebody, you should, you should do that. Obviously, that's a paraphrase. I'm butchering it. But somebody that needs to be promoted and given more authority, that, that is also true. Sometimes someone's in the way, and, and we need to move them out. So that would be the first step. The second step, I would say, is to simplify every process. Look at every process. And we don't do this well in Christian higher ed or in higher ed in general. We don't audit our processes and see. Why are we doing this? Does this still make sense? Why are we paying for this piece of software or this consultant or this particular you know, program? Does it still make sense? And delete any process so you can simplify the process. I mean, this is what Silicon Valley does so well. They look at something that has a lot of steps, a lot of processes, and they come in and they disrupt it. They disrupt that and they say, we're going to change all of this. We don't like the disruption often because it's being done to us, but we can disrupt our own processes and say these no longer apply. So when you disrupt and you simplify, you save so much time and resource. And then after you've gotten to that point, the third step I would say is program, which uh, you know another word for that is to automate. You know now now canonize that pro- the new process. So we have our right people in place. We have audited all of our processes and we, we have simplified them and deleted unnecessary steps. And now we are automating or canonizing the, 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 the programming, the flywheel and the flywheel turns. And then you do it again and you do it again, because as you do that, you're going to continue to grow. 
which means you're going to need to promote. You're going to need to move people into other positions. You're going to need to look at your processes again, and then you're going to automate it again. And I don't think we do this at all. I think, I think a lot of times in our sector, we're very stagnant and that makes us ripe for disruption. And uh, Silicon Valley looks and uh, they look to disrupt industries. Education is one that they're looking to disrupt. I think we disrupt ourselves, disrupt ourselves so that we're less likely to be disrupted. If you think about Apple, Apple had the number one selling device with the iPod was an incredible selling device. And they disrupted themselves and invented the iPhone. You, good luck buying an iPod now. They don't really exist in the marketplace. You can probably find one on eBay. But I think I have one in my drawer. Yeah, I have one in my drawer somewhere too. <laughs> you can pull it out. Uh, I don't think it works anymore, but they disrupt themselves. They come up with new, new uh, equipment, new hardware, new software all the time to replace their old for fear that if they don't, someone else will. We just let it ride for years and years and years, and we get really unhealthy as organizations because we don't have the flywheel turning. Yeah, it, it, it's great. And, and it takes significant energy in order to get that flywheel turning. And the tech industry is so accustomed to, to that flywheel that that's how they've been operating. That's how they disrupt. That's how they come up with new product. For the sector that, that we're in, uh, too often we look for a, a, an easy solution. Okay, well now we have the flywheel solution. So I got to make sure I have the right people and we're going to, you know, take away the roadblocks and, and create efficiencies and, and design the right program. Okay, I did it. Why aren't things any different? Well, it takes a lot to get, it, it's a mindset. It's a, it's a cultural change on our campuses to get that flywheel turning. Because there's a lot of fear right? So go back to the first part, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like what, what does God want? And what does it look like when he gets what he wants? That in a nutshell is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what, when we submit, when we surrender to that, he always answers that prayer. So a lot of times when people are pushing back or there's that, I think, well, wait a minute, who's sitting on the throne here? Are you or is Jesus? Is Jesus Lord? Is Darren Lord? And sometimes it's a gut check of maybe I've got my butt on the throne and maybe I need to yield, kneel down and, and make Jesus Lord because he didn't promise me comfort. I mean, he has a plan. He's invited me into the plan, but it could be hard. It could be uncomfortable. It might even mean failure on my part for him to be glorified. Am I willing to follow him into that fiery furnace? I mean, I would argue that I would rather be in the center of the fiery furnace in God's will than to be outside looking at. What are you seeing happening in the tech space right now that has direct impact impact on higher education? Yeah. Artificial intelligence is is the hot you know topic. I mean, anybody in the last six months that was doing anything with artificial intelligence, they could get funded just blank checks. And I have some friends in that space that are doing some incredible things. And in artificial intelligence, there's a lot of fear around that term, and there's a lot of skepticism. But I will tell you that. Artificial intelligence will disrupt education in ways that we haven't even considered. It, it will be a, a magnitude like the internet. I mean, if I remember uh, being a student in the early 90s in college, and the internet was really just happening, but the internet was a bunch of guys playing role-playing games in, in chat rooms. You know, it really wasn't mainstream. Remember when, uh, you know, NetSuite, or um, what was the browser. Netscape. That was that it. Was it. With, remember Netscape? With the, with, with yeah. the old dial-up uh, yeah. connections. Right? I remember when it came out and they did the IPO and it was a really big deal. And then of course, Apple came out with the iMac, you know, I being internet. And you know that kind of kicked everything off. And 
I remember, you know, before we had email and, you know, a computer was word processing and, and uh, spreadsheets. Well, think about what we're doing right now you know, that we're creating this content with these incredibly nearly free tools. The, what we experienced over the last 20 years with the internet, we're about to experience again with artificial intelligence, and it will be incredibly disruptive. I think those uh, in the church that understand it and invest in it in a positive way, I think we can really use it for some good. And there's some use cases that I'm really excited about. And there's obviously some ways that I think the enemy will attempt to use it for harm. And if we're not careful, they could do a lot of a lot of damage. Yeah, and it, go, it goes back to some of your answers with the previous question that why not disrupt ourselves? Why, why are we passively waiting for disruption to happen outside of us? Because tech tech is gunning for for education, for higher education, for Christian higher education, for all for all the reasons we've we've already talked about. So. Why not disrupt ourselves and in the process use some of the disruptive technologies that are out there to advance the kingdom of God, right, yes. that, you, that you would have? But Yeah, I think, I mean, if, here's how I would dream about artificial intelligence. Think about the Socratic method of question and answer. And so when we think about education, whether it's K-12 or higher ed, it's a factory model, it's a farming agri- agricultural model where, you know, you have a whole, a whole group of folks in a room with a subject matter expert, a teacher, faculty member, and there's the transfer of knowledge that's happening. Well, transfer of knowledge is going to be less valuable because knowledge is going to be so available to you in an artificial intelligence assistant. You're going to be able to ask it, what was that browser from the 90s? And it's going to tell you the answer. So knowing how to find knowledge will replace kind of mastery of knowledge. So that's something that people need to consider. So for education to adapt, to be relevant, I think we're going to have to create environments, experiences and environments where people, um, life on life, are growing. And I think, I think our model is really important for that. I think we've created these incredible campuses where people come and they get challenged, they encounter God, and they encounter believers um, that maybe are different than them, that think different, that have more maturity in areas where they're weak. And this life-on-life experience, I think that'll be really important. We're seeing this now. Um, concerts are really special now. I mean, if you think about entertainers and the cost of concert tickets going up, it's because that live experience is so special. Um, the music is so accessible digitally. People can have it all the time, but they experience it live. So I'd say one of, one of the opportunities for artificial intelligence is for us to curate not just knowledge transfer in a classroom, but actually a life experience where people are going to be on a journey together. People are going to want that. It's going to become more potent uh, when knowledge is just so readily available. The other thing is um, with the Socratic method, uh, a custom journey for each learner. We're going to be able to program a tutor that will understand a subject better than any professor. It'll have access to all of that information on that subject. So it can be as niche, you know, as something like biblical archaeology, or it could be something broad like physics. And so we'll we'll create a, a, a large model around physics, let's say. And what'll happen on a traditional learning management system, a traditional LMS, you know, you have a series of assignment types that you take so that you can kind of be assessed and gain mastery. Well, you won't have that. You'll have maybe the first assignment. And a student will take that assignment. And then the artificial intelligence will then create the second assignment, kind of like choose your own adventure. Remember those books when we were kids? 
It'll be like choose your own adventure where it'll be a custom um, assignment based on that student's uh, learning and that, that assessment. And that assessment will be visual. I mean, it'll be not all the nonverbal cues that'll be happening through cameras and technology. It'll be obviously, you know, the conversation. This avatar or AI could be anyone. I mean, it could be a wise old sage. We could make it Mr. Miyagi, you know, and I'm Daniel's son, or it could be uh, Oprah Winfrey, or it could be LeBron James, or it could be my mother or my father or my kid brother or my older sister. I mean, it, it could be any nationality, any ethnicity, in any language. I mean, I mean, this will be an incredible tutor. And if we can also not only teach it physics, but teach it apologetics, you know, integrate our faith into that, then it'll integrate that into all of all of the educational experience. So that won't replace the human contact. Again, I think that we'll want to have these um, these places, these, these places that we can journey together. But our learning model will be so much more prolific than the internet now, where we search for something and get an answer. It'll be a back and forth Socratic method type of model. And I would say that model will be here in the next four years. I mean, we're going to have this. It's going to happen very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, we need to bring our time to a close. And Darren, I, I want to say thank you uh, for your work in our space. And we'll put in the notes of the description access to Campus EDU uh, as well as Slingshot. But it's been a great conversation to say, okay, how, how let's not let's not allow fear to drive how we act, how we respond. There are technologies out there that we need to embrace, that we need to leverage, all while recognizing Christ's commandment to go and make disciples is as real today as it was 2,000 years ago. And that that necessitates us face-to-face engaging with each other, iron sharpening iron, advancing the kingdom of God. So you've done a fine job of bringing all, all, of, those, uh, all of those elements together. So, so thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Phil. I appreciate your friendship. Come Lord Absolutely. Jesus. Amen. Amen. So until next time, stay kingdom focused. Thanks for listening to Biblical Higher Ed Talk. For more, follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. We're delighted that you chose to spend a part of your day with us and encourage you to reach out to us with feedback, topics, or guests for the show. You can get in touch with Philip, your host, via LinkedIn or at biblicalhigheredtalk at abhe.org. Biblical Higher Ed Talk is a production of the Association for Biblical Higher Education in association with Westport Studios. Views expressed on this show are those of the participants and may not reflect the views of ABHE or Westport Studios. Bring light and life to your biblical higher educational organization by inquiring about membership with ABHE at abhe.org. We'll catch you next time.